Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 18. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as I read verses 18 through 30? And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus seeing that he had become sad said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I want to say hi to everyone here on campus with us and those of you joining online. Great to be together today, wherever you're joining us from this morning. If you're on campus, if you want to remove your mask during the sermon, please feel free to do so at this time. Before we get to the sermon of the day, I wanted to update you on some things that are happening here at Orangewood. Over the past month, we have been tracking our attendance, those joining us on campus. And we've been noticing over the last couple of weeks, our attendance has been increasing. Uh, Now, we are still well within our max capacity range for space with social distancing. Uh, But with our increasing attendance here on campus and with our usual attendance increase during the month of December, our, our governing elders voted to move to two services starting December 6th for the month of December. This will... This will give us more opportunities uh, to serve our community and uh, gives us more safety and safety protocols as we have more room in our services. But I I just wanted you to know that that's the way it is going to be for the month of December. And going forward, you don't have to worry starting next week about registering for service or for registering for child care. Uh, Our hope and our desire is that we can serve you and we'll be ready for you, whatever that you need. Our desire as your elders is that we would have you worship here on campus with us and removing as many barriers as possible for you to join us here on Sunday mornings. And now if you are elderly or you have significant health issues, we encourage you actually to still consider watching online. But if that is not you, uh, our desire as your elders is that we would see you back on campus with us. Uh, We'll have more details in the coming weeks, uh, uh, but I want you to know I'm actually very encouraged with where we are as a church and how we have been engaging together um, and the ways that you have continued to support the work of the ministry here. I would ask that you continue to pray for the leaders of our church uh, for wisdom. Uh, As you know, leading a church during a pandemic um, creates many different opportunities, 
but also challenges uh, in the season that we're in. So we'd ask for your prayers, but once again, my encouragement, my invitation to you, uh, join us here on campus uh, for Sunday worship. If you're new with us here today or watching online, uh, I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, we started back in August through next May looking at these encounters different people had with Jesus, different encounters that people had with Jesus in the Gospels. Today, we actually begin a new sermon series. It's a two-part sermon series called Unmerited Favor. Uh, we'll be looking at two encounters from the Gospel of Luke and how these people responded to God's grace and to God's generosity to them. And we'll look at what that generosity means for our own lives. You see, Luke refers to wealthy people or to wealth four times as often as you would see in the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark. And now you may be here thinking, uh, well, well, Tyler, I'm not wealthy. I, I know those people. Um, you may be saying, oh, uh, Tyler, uh, at the end of the day, I, I feel more poor than I feel wealthy. Um, but uh, this morning, I, and I mean no guilt trip by this at all, uh, if you make more than $25,000 a year, if you make more than that, you are in the top 10% of the world's wealthiest. If you make more than 34000 a year, you are actually in the top 1% of the world's wealth. So you see, for most of us, uh, we really don't need the production of more wealth, as wonderful as that would be if it came. We, we, we wouldn't mind that. But actually, what we need more than the production of wealth is the perspective actually on our wealth. Uh, the unmerited favor that we have already received from God. And it's important for us to see God's generosity to us through the gospel. God's generosity towards us and what those implications mean as we reevaluate our generosity towards others. Now, generosity is way more than about giving away your money. It needs to be a pervasive quality to your life. You would become a generous person. But to be pervasively generous in your life also means being generous with your money. Now, of course, the second I say that, there's somebody here in the room or somebody watching online who is thinking, well, there he goes, the preacher talking about money. Now, please hear me. Please hear me. This message is way more about your flourishing than the church's bottom line. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but lose his soul? What, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I found J.R. Edwards, whose commentary on the Gospel of Luke had this great statement that I found extremely helpful. And here's what he says. One cannot say that wealth is a categorical evil in Luke's gospel, but one must say that it poses an unquestionable danger to faith and discipleship. Edward says there's this unquestionable danger that we must examine. And today in this gospel, Luke is asking us to discern in our own lives the effects Three invitations about money's unquestionable danger and God's unquestionable generosity. First, the one thing we must see. Second, the one thing we must say. And lastly, the one thing we need. 
the one thing we must see, the one thing we must say, and finally, the one thing we need. Let's look at the one thing we must see. And the one thing we must see in this passage is the deception of money. Here in our passage that was read, we see that Jesus has this encounter with this rich ruler. Uh, in other accounts, we, we hear that he is young as well. So we, this man has incredible success at an incredibly young age. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in the first century, there were three common questions that rabbis would be asked in the first century. Uh, the first question would be, um, what is permitted on the Sabbath? Uh, Jesus was asked that. Uh, another question is, who is my neighbor? Jesus was asked that. And the final question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In the following verses, Jesus asked some simple questions to get at the heart of this rich ruler. He asked him about his relationship with these commandments. And this man tells Jesus, I have kept all of these commandments since I was young. It's only when Jesus questions him about his giving and how could he possibly give away everything he has to the poor that this rich ruler is finally exposed. And rather than seeing the error of his life and trading it all in to follow Jesus, he walks away in this passage that tells us very sad. In fact, in the Greek, it's peri lupos. Peri is a preposition meaning to encircle or engulf. And lupe is sadness. This, this man was engulfed by a sadness. The, the, the weight, the overwhelming feeling of his sadness. He is crushed because he realizes the effects of riches on his life. Now, what we must see is the deception of money for this rich ruler's life. He looked, he assessed his life. He thought everything was just fine. Everything was working out in his favor. I have done all that I need to, to inherit eternal life. But Jesus being the great teacher that he is for you and for me, he did not let him off the hook, but he honed in on the issue that money is blinding us. How does money blind us? How does it deceive us? Well, first money deceives us with a false sense of security. Uh, it tells us that there's not really an issue there. We don't have an issue with money. One thing that we have to come to grips with is how easy money deceives us and how prone you and I are to self-deception. Psychologists have been writing for years about this quality of self-deception uh, and its power over us. There's a professor named Dan Ariely who teaches at Duke University, and he wrote a book, a great book called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Everyone especially ourselves. Uh, in his book, Ariely says he was amazed in his research uh, how we cheat, deceive, and lie. He said there's two main motivations that we all feel uh, as humans. One is for selfish gain, and the other is to avoid pain. Selfish gain and avoid pain. But he says these motivations live in conflict with each other. Uh, so when I want to do something so bad that I will even lie to get it, but knowing that I'm doing something wrong, wanting to avoid the pain, how can I avoid this pain and still get what I want and feel good about it? That's, that's the dilemma that you and I feel. And Ariely tells us that we get very creative with how we deal with this tension in our lives. And he writes this. This is where our amazing cognitive flexibility comes into play with this tension we feel. Thanks to this human skill, as long as we cheat only a little bit, 
only a little bit, we can begin to benefit from selfish gain and still view ourselves as marvelous human beings. What Ariely calls cognitive flexibility, the prophet Jeremiah from the Old Testament calls a deceitful heart. Ariely goes on to give empirical data of this phenomenon. He writes this. Over the course of many years of teaching, I have noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly in the week before final exams and before papers are due. This morning, can you guess which relative is most often dying for these students? Which relative? Grandma. Grandma always seems to be dying. In fact, Dr. Mike Adams from Eastern Connecticut State University did some research on this. He found out that grandmothers were 10 times more likely to die before a midterm and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Even worse, even worse. Grandmothers of students who are not doing well in class are at an even higher risk. (laughs) Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose grandma than a non-failing student. Dr. Adams found that the most deciding factor for whether grandma lives or grandma dies is actually the grandchild's GPA. So if you are a grandma and you are here today and you hear nothing else, if you are watching online, if you hear nothing else from this sermon, please, please, please hear this. Do not let your grandchild go to college. (laughs) Especially if your grandchild is not a good student. It will kill you. (laughs) Deception can have a powerful hold on our life. And money can make us believe things that everything is okay when everything is not. We can go about our day with this false sense that everything is okay when in reality, reality, the building is on fire and you and I need to get out. After the North Tower was struck during the September 11th attacks, the people on the 89th floor of the South Tower formed a consensus to stay put. Uh, In fact, there was an announcement that came over the intercom as well, ensuring this, saying, please stay where you are, remain where you are. And they didn't want people to exit the building for fear that they would be hit by falling debris. The same consensus happened on the 88th floor as well of the South Tower. Everyone had decided to stay put. That is until J.J. Aguilar came along and started running and yelling across everyone on the 88th floor that we need to get out. Now, what he didn't know was that a second plane was within minutes going to be striking the South Tower just below the 88th floor. So everyone above where the plane hit would have been stuck. These people on the 88th floor. Aguilar saved many lives because something in him knew that we can't stay here. And money deceives us and it lulls us into a false sense of security. We, we believe I gotta, I just gotta get a little more of this. I just gotta get a little more money and then everything is going to be okay. 
Once I get a little more, then I'll start giving. Then I'll start being generous. But that day just never seems to come. And Jesus is inviting us to see that we cannot stay here. We can't stay here. We think that money will remedy all of our problems, but what we find is that money ends up being our ruin rather than our remedy. Harriet Rubin wrote an article in the magazine Fast Company. The article was entitled Success and Excess. It, it, was, it was talking about how people were asking, uh, that she was asking people and talking to them and seeking how they were finding career success, how they were finding financial wealth and security beyond their wildest dreams. And, and she was asking, how, how do you feel about summoning the mountain of your own making? Um, how, how do you feel that you've finally gotten this quote unquote security that you were looking for? And this is what she said. Of all the subjects we obsess about, Success is the one we lie about the most. That success and its cousin money will make us secure. That success and its cousin power will make us important. That success and its cousin fame will make us happy. It's time to tell the truth. Why are our generation's smartest, most talented, most successful people flirting with disaster in record numbers? People are using all their means to get money, power, and glory, and then self-destructing. Maybe they didn't want it in the first place or didn't like what they saw when they finally achieved it. Reuben says there is this void that people feel and that they believe that money will fill all of those problems, that it will fill all those accolades that they're looking for. And then once they get the wealth that they're looking for, then they'll be more happy than they could possibly imagine. But Reuben's assessment was that these people were almost more miserable in the end, that their money did not live up to the hype. I don't know if you've heard of market timers, market timers. They watch the stock market for signs. They've watched the stock market for signs that the market is going to drop and they reinvest the money where they think it will be safe. The company IBM first got listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 1915, 1915. The question for you this morning is, if you acquired one share, just one share of that stock on that day in 1915, how much would it be worth to you today? How much would it be worth to you today? Now, I have no clue, absolutely no clue of how to invest money or anything like that. But I know that there's some people in this church who are incredibly savvy with the market. And so you may already know the answer, but just take a minute in your mind. Imagine this. You can even write in on the Facebook comment section. How much do you think it would be worth to you today? That one stock of IBM from 1915. Do you have your answer in your head? Cause I have the answer actually. If you bought one share of IBM stock in 1915, you would be dead today. <laughs> so it would be worth nothing to you at all. Proverbs tells us this. Proverbs 23, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. 
Can everyone take out your hand? Just hold out your hand like this. Even online, you could do that. Can we just wave? Just wave by to all your money. There it goes. Especially if you have kids or grandkids, just wave by. Wave by to all of your money. There it goes. So there's this false sense of security that money gives. It lies to us that it will solve all of our problems, that it will finally make us safe. And then once we get to a certain level, once we get to that place of safety and security, then we'll give back. Then then we will be generous. But somehow our money grows wings and it just flies away. There it goes. There's another place where we see that money deceives us, and that is it gives us a false sense of righteousness. We see in our passage, our rich ruler seems to think that he is doing just fine until Jesus presses him harder than he ever thought on the control of money on his life. Uh, we, had, we can look and we can be convinced in ourselves as we look at the lives of others that we are doing just fine with money. We're, we're actually just doing okay. We're, we're, we're good with this. We have no issue with the power of money on our lives. The, those over there, they, they, whoever they are in your life, they're the ones who have the issue. I'll put it this way. Uh, I remember listening to Pastor Tim Keller, who uh, pastored a church in New York City, uh, share about this. He was giving a talk in his own church. Uh, he shared about one time they were doing a, a series of classes on the seven deadly sins. And, and one day he was talking about this, these classes with his wife and his, the various topics they were going to cover. And she began to ask him, Tim, are you going to do a class on all seven deadly sins? And Tim responded, yes, every one, all seven. One every time we meet. And his wife responded, so you're going to do one on greed, yes? Keller replied, absolutely. She replied, well, you can go ahead and cancel it now because no one is going to come. Now, I know some of you think the pastor's wife, they're always there in your corner. They're cheering you on. You go. You do it. I'm for you. But sometimes the pastor's wife has to just simply speak reality. Because she followed up and said, well, that's an awful idea. But here's the thing. Keller's wife was right. No one came. No one came. Do you know why? Because no one thinks they have a greed problem. We all are looking at someone else in our life and we think they are the ones, those people really have the issue with greed. I'll put it another way. In the 15 years that I have been a pastor, I have counseled people over many issues from addictions, relationship issues, anger, many others. I have not had anyone come to meet with me and say to me, I needed to meet with you, Pastor Tyler, because I have a greed problem. Not one. Never happened. We always look and say that person over there has the real issue. I remember having a conversation I started up with a professional athlete I knew. He was upset because he was not sure how he was going to make it in this next year because of the new contract that he got for playing his sport and how he was going to provide for his family. He wasn't sure if he was going to be able to make it work. He was scheduled in that next year when he signed that contract to make 1.5 million for that year. Now, as we were having this conversation in my head, I was thinking, I think I can make that work. 
I can make it work. But what was happening? He was looking at all the guys on his team. He knew. And some of their contracts were 25 times what he was making. He saw how they were spending their money. He saw the houses. He saw the cars. He saw the lifestyle. He saw the greed in their life. And he said, like the rich young ruler, oh, I've obeyed all the commands since I was young. Money deceives us into thinking that we don't have an issue. T Tyler, I don't have an issue with money. Maybe someone else, but I'm fine. It convinces us that somehow we are good compared to all these other people. I don't know if you ever saw the TV show Friends from the 1990s and early 2000s. It recounts the life of six friends who live in New York City together. And one of the main characters, her name is Monica Geller. And if you haven't seen the show, um, she is the type A perfectionist in your life. Um, she's that person in your life where everything has its place. Uh, everything is tidy and put together just like she is. There's a right way to load the dishwasher, if you will. And the show does a really good job of portraying her sense of righteousness over all the other characters. But what you find out later in the show, there is a closet. There's always a closet. Maybe you've seen this episode. But we find out there is a closet where Monica has been stuffing all of her mess, where she has put all the things that don't fit in her tidy little life. You can't even get into the closet because if you opened it, everything would begin to pour out. And some of you, I know, have a closet like this. Jesus shows the rich ruler and us, despite our best efforts to deceive ourselves and to think everything is okay, there is an issue that we have tried to hide even from ourselves. Jesus essentially opens that closet door. He reveals the issue. Everything is beginning to tumble out onto the floor. This is what we must see, that our money deceives us. And Jesus has come out of his kindness to reveal the issue to us. He's opened that closet door. So where do we go from here? If we can admit we don't have the best relationship with money, how do we get out of its grip? Well, that brings us to the second invitation, the one thing we must say. The one thing we must say. Sadly, once he was exposed, this rich young ruler, he went away very sad. But what we learn from this passage is what we must say. You see, later Jesus tells us about money and the kingdom of God. He says this. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus here is using a very common practice of rabbinical metaphor. He, he uses the largest animal that was known in the world at this time. So he's using a camel. If they had known about elephants, he probably would have used elephants. But he uses a camel. And Jesus contrasts it with the eye of the needle, which is the smallest object they knew. The metaphor is trying to invoke within the crowd impossibility. And you see the disciples are picking up what Jesus was putting down, if you will. Because listen to the next verse. This is what they say. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? Friends, this is the one thing we must say. If we're going to get the gospel like the disciples, we will have to say, then who can be saved? 
We have to realize we have put our hopes and our trust into money and that it deceives us into thinking everything is okay. Everything is fine. But this is when you know you are starting to get it. When you see the impossibility in ourselves, Jesus responds with this assurance in verse 27. He says this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Uh, Roy Baumeister is a psychologist that I have really enjoyed reading. And he wrote an article talking about this very important step in the process of life change. And in his article, he called it the crystallization of discontent, the crystallization of discontent. I love that phrase. And he says, this is a central step to any major life change. And if you probably have experienced the crystallization of discontent already in your life, when you said enough is enough, I need to lose some weight. Enough is enough. I need to acknowledge the drinking issue. Our marriage is in trouble. Or when you recognize I am in debt up to my eyeballs. You have to get to the place where you are willing to surrender your will and say to yourself, I cannot stay here. I cannot stay here. We have to all come to the same place with our money. We have to say to ourselves, I can't stay here. You see, money has, is this incredible resource, and I encourage you to make as much as you possibly can. There are no issues with making as much as you can. It is an incredible resource that God gives us to steward for God's kingdom and can be used for incredible good in our world. Money is an incredible resource. It is simply an awful ruler. And when it rules your life, it will choke out the beauty and all the kingdom capital potential that God wants to use through you. Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you said to your soul, I cannot stay here. That's when you know you're opening yourself up to the potential and the possibility of the ways God can work in you and through you. And it opens you up to the one thing you need. That's the last invitation. What's the one thing you need? Well, in our passage, Jesus extends this invitation to you and to me that he's been holding out forever. And it's simply this. He says this in verse 18, 22. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Jesus extends the invitation for us to see that the one thing we need is the one thing you and I already have in him. If we would choose to follow him and surrender our lives to him. Jesus is essentially saying, I am the one treasure you have been searching for. I am the one treasure and the only treasure that will satisfy. C.S. Lewis really gets at this in his book, The Weight of Glory. Uh, that saying we, we have simply stopped short of plunging all of our joys and our desires in the one treasure that we need. Listen to Lewis. This is how he puts it. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition with, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. 
You see, we think our issue is that we desire too much, but actually our problem is that we do not desire enough, that we have not plunged our joys into the one treasure we need. I run into this issue actually all the time with conversations with people who have issues with Christianity or issues with the Bible. Uh, They think that Christianity is about repenting of the desires that you have, that all of your desires are bad. But Christianity is actually about doing a treasure audit on your life and repenting that we simply haven't gone far enough. We didn't give ourselves to the one to whom all of our desires have been pointing and to life with him. You see, people think that Christianity is about calling you to be really sacrificial. Uh, that, That what Jesus is asking you to do, you need to go be really sacrificial with your life. You need to be really sacrificial with your money that it's about sacrifice. And that's not what Jesus is after. He's actually asking you to do the most sane thing possible. Jesus told a parable one time about life with God. And this is what he said. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I love this story that Jesus tells about life with God because it shows Christianity is not about sacrifice. It's actually about inviting you and me to do the most sane thing possible. It's about getting us to see the one thing that we truly need. This person in this story has found a treasure. He found it. He covered it up, but he didn't say, you know what? I'm just going to leave this for some other bloke. No, he covered it up. He went home and he gave up whatever he had possible so he could go with joy, with joy, with joy to buy that field because it was all that he needed. It was the search of his life and he had found it. And this morning, God is inviting you to see that the treasure you are looking for to satisfy you, the treasure you are looking for to give you meaning and purpose, the treasure you are looking for for an identity that will give you an identity through everything you will possibly face in this life, the treasure you are looking for has always and will always be pointing to him. And here's how you know that you have found this field. This is how you know you found this buried treasure. When money can just be money in your life. When you start to, out of sheer joy, give away all of your money to God's work in the world, not to earn your eternal life like this rich ruler, but because you have eternal life. Because you found the treasure in the field. After she was finishing up high school in the early 1960s, getting ready for college, Eileen Douglas sat down with her dad and her dad told her about the 2000 acre dairy farm in the mountains of North Carolina was going to be hers when it was passed on to her through inheritance. It was a beautiful place located in a beautiful piece of land just outside of Asheville, North Carolina. So if you've been there, you know, you know, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Incredible location with incredible value. She didn't think much of it at the time. She was getting prepared to go off to college. Then the following summer, Eileen went out to Colorado and attended a young life camp where she met Jesus for the first time in her life. She came home radically changed by Jesus and her parents took notice of her life transformation. Her father, Lawrence Douglas, the following year sat Eileen down 
when she came home from college and he shared with her that they were considering donating their 2000 acres of land to young life to be developed for one of their camps because they saw the difference Jesus had made in her life. Mr. Douglas asked Eileen, how would you feel if we gave the farmland to young life? Her response was, wow, that would be super. You have to understand the gravity of this moment. Eileen with joy, with joy was choosing to walk away from a very massive sum of money, millions. But don't you see she had a better treasure, the ultimate treasure. So in 1966, Eileen connected her father with the directors from Young Life and they handed over the property and the camp opened in 1970 as Windy Gap. In fact, this year, Windy Gap is celebrating their 50 years of operation. Over 600,000 people have come to Windy Gap with many of them giving their lives to Jesus, choosing to follow him just like Eileen. And the reason I know this is because I am one of them. In June of 1999, I sat on a park bench by myself on the camp of Windy Gap and gave my life to Jesus. This was the opportunity through God's province where God opened my eyes to the beauty of the gospel because there was a family who would not invest their treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. But the Douglas family invested their treasures in heaven because they wanted to connect their generosity to God's generosity and the power of grace working in their lives. Friends, this is the treasure of heaven. And I don't know what Mr. Douglas looks like, but I know that he will not be hard to spot because there will be a long line of people. Gathered around him in heaven, looking to shake his hand and thank him for choosing the better treasure. And for this family who was willing to use their resources for me and many, many lives. And for our lives to be changed by the gospel. This morning, don't you see that the Douglas family found the true treasure buried in the field and with joy, with joy, with joy, they gave everything they had because they had what they needed. They had found their holiday at the sea, as C.S. Lewis put it. And my prayer, my prayer for us is that we would have that same reality as well. Have you found the treasure to which all other treasures in your life have only been pointing? And my hope for Orangewood is that we would be the kind of church with the kind of generosity that will change this world, that people will be lined up in heaven to shake your hand, to say thank you that you did not choose treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but you chose to invest in a better treasure. The lines of the great hymn go like this. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee. Take my silver, take my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Can you say that? Can you say, just take it all Lord, have it all. It is yours. It has always been yours. And because I have the ultimate treasure in my life, everything is open-handed. My money is just money to be used for you. 
and for your kingdom. Follow him, the fountain of all desire to which all desires have been pointing in your life and find the one, the only treasure that we need. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your generosity has been lavished on us through the gospel. That in Jesus, the one treasure we need, we already have. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts so we can give you all our lives and for the people whose lives will be changed because of the generosity that you work through our church. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.